On today's episode, I talk with Marianne Deeks, a registered psychotherapist focused on supporting youth with mental health concerns. We talk about her genuine delight in youth, why Jesus is okay with therapy, what faith communities get right and wrong when supporting families living with a mental illness, and where she finds hope even in the midst of very difficult situations. This is Through a Glass Darkly, the podcast about following Jesus while living with a mental illness. Marianne is a co-worker from Youth Unlimited, the youth-serving organization I work for. While we don't directly work together, I've taken part in a number of trainings she has provided around adolescent development and mental health, and I've also referred a number of youth to her for therapy. She's knowledgeable, caring, authentic, and funny, and I'm so glad she agreed to talk to me for this podcast. Finally, a trigger warning. In this conversation, we do talk about suicide. So we're here with Marianne. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us. Me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so why don't, why don't you, uh, why don't you explain a little bit about uh, what you do? Sure. Um, so I am a registered psychotherapist, uh, under the umbrella of youth unlimited. So that means that, um, I can provide services to youth in our programs, um, at a reduced cost. And then on the side, like under the umbrella as well. I have a private practice that um, allows me to meet with teenagers um, just that I meet or from churches or communities or yeah. So they're kind of blended together. Cool. How long have you been doing that for? Uh, since 2018. That specific. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then in youth work in general, how long, how long have you actually done that for? Um, I started with Youth Unlimited, actually, it'll be 25 years in February. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Um, but I did that. Um, I actually got connected to youth ministry in overseas. So I've probably been working with teens for like 28 years. So wow. long time. Yeah. Is there is there a 25 year gift? I don't even know. I hope so. Yeah, should be. <laughs> should be. I think so. I think there is. I don't know. I have no yeah. idea. All right. 25 years though. Good for you. I know. It's Man. been a long time. Yeah, no kidding. Lots of changes, I'm sure. Yeah, lots of changes in youth culture, actually. That's been mm -hmm. interesting. When mm -hmm. you do it long enough, you start to notice the, you know, yeah, I, I would say the trends. I mean, that might sound harsh, but really it is a trend almost, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, why don't we start then with a little bit about your faith background? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian reform background. So um, my parents, um, we went to church every week and I went to Christian schools until I was in grade 13. Um, I would say I probably didn't have a, a relationship with Jesus until I was uh, 23 because, um, yeah, I don't, I, it's just the way it went. But I, my hair, my legacy, my, no, my my heritage of faith I'm realizing is quite strong. Like my aunts and uncles and everyone that I grew up with um, went to church and had a very similar worldview. So in some ways it was very safe, quite a beautiful upbringing actually. Um, and then I went to university after high school and uh, got introduced to the real world. And uh, so things went a little sideways for a while. 
but in the midst of that, I was also in the summers going to um, Muskoka Woods. And I had some incredible women that were super influential and would answer my questions without any um, judgment or, uh, yeah, they were just amazing. So literally hours of questions and wondering who Jesus really was because I knew of him, but I don't think I really knew him, like I said. Mm -hmm. So um, then I'd go back to university and mm -hmm. kind of get challenged by what was in university and um and then when I was nearing my end of university, I had a friend reach out to me and she said, basically, what are you doing? You're living two lives. And it was very true. I was, you know, <laughs> doing what people thought was good and pure and then not really at university. So uh, I just kind of made a choice. I'm like, this is silly. And I decided to accept Jesus really as my own, um, my own savior, kind of the end of university, which then I was... Um, graduating and I knew that I wanted to travel so jump over a year I went traveling for a year and in that year I you know you had no accountability but I did meet um, some really again incredible people one of them was uh, a young person my age she was a teacher and she was um, Christian as well and so we just had some really good conversations, good connections. I'm actually hoping to go visit her next summer, which is pretty cool. She nice. lives in Africa. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, uh, and then um, I ended up going to Ireland in that and got connected to Youth for Christ Ireland and started volunteering with um, the youth ministry in Ireland. And I loved it. I was, it was amazing. So I was offered a job there but then ended up coming home and then got connected to Youth for Christ Canada or Toronto at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that's the goals notes version of my faith story. So you talk about going back to Muskoka woods in the summers and, and just like having yeah. tons of questions. Do you remember like what the main, yeah, the main thrust of those questions were, was it around one specific thing or. If there was a theme, if I remember correctly, was like really, who is God? Who's Jesus? Like, you know, what does he think of me? Who is he actually? What does he want for us? It was just kind of those questions because again, growing up in a Christian church, you knew of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Sorry, growing up in a Christian school system, you knew of Jesus, but the personal relationship um, in hindsight, I think a lot of it was legalities, right? Like do this, don't do this. And but to really understand that Jesus loved me regardless of, you know, what I did and it was really significant. And so it was a really valuable um, time. Muskoka hmm. Woods was pivotal, I would say, in my faith journey for sure. Was that like a hard truth for you to accept that kind of regardless of what you were doing or how you were living, that his love was pretty constant? Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, very much into my, probably into my thirties and forties. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just to recognize it wasn't about doing, it was about being. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I was a very good doer. Mm. And, and, and I grew up in a home. I, um, even my culture is Dutch. The Dutch do a lot, mm -hmm. like just, just busy, right? Very, very, um, yeah, they're doers. And so I grew up in a home where doing was really significant. And uh, again, I'm grateful for my upbringing, but there was that little part that I just didn't really know about or 
understand, I would say for myself. So. And so if you were, so you, like you say, you're a really good doer, which I mean, yeah, you don't, I don't think you get to this point without being pretty accomplished, but what, I guess like, what was the um, dissatisfaction with that then? What, what made you like think, okay, there's gotta be more to this than, than just like being really good at doing religious things. I, I think uh, it's exhausting mm. because on top of that, and that was more me, I think I was uh, very much a people pleaser, right? Mm. So you, you can't please everybody regardless. It doesn't mm. matter how hard you try. There's always going to be someone that's, at least it feels like they're not happy with you. Mm-hmm. So I think it was just exhausting. And mm. when you get to the point where you realize I don't have to say yes to everything. I don't have to do all this. Man, it's freeing. Right. <laughs> so and good. So was God just like another another person you needed to please? Yeah, mm. probably. Yeah. Like, you know, the whole thing of, oh, you need to do your devotions at this time every day. And then you need to be part of this ministry and this program. And right. Mm-hmm. You have to be in Bible study. It's like, it's exhausting, yeah. which is what that didn't, that didn't change in my twenties for sure. In fact, I was very, very much a doer and a pleaser back then, but in hindsight, looking back for sure, that was a big part of it. Yeah. Hmm. So then you go to Ireland, you start working um, with some youth. Did you just kind of like fall into that or were you always interested in, in doing youth work? And yeah, what about it appealed to you? Yeah, so uh, I worked in Muskoka Woods, like I said, and uh, my job, I realized I really liked working with teenagers. I They were hilarious to me and they, I don't know, I just started to say, man, these young people have a lot of potential. So um then when I went to Africa, I actually worked in a school as like a dorm mom. Mm. And same thing, I would sleep in the dorm, my own dorm, <laughs> my own yeah, room. Okay. <laughs> and uh, same thing, I just loved the girls. I had so much fun with them, even more than the staff. In fact, the staff in that school didn't really like me because I was North American, but that's a whole other story. Oh. Um Except for a couple, like my friend, like I said, but um, yeah, so I really, really enjoyed meeting with these girls and just hearing their life and, you know, walking with their struggles and being able to offer some sort of guidance. And then when I was in Ireland, the youth we worked with were pretty hard. Some of them were like kind of tougher. And then I just loved that too. So it was, it was just an interesting journey, actually. Like I, I got into nursing out of university, uh, sorry, out of high school, and I chose not to do to go, which that's mm. a whole other story. But, um, but it's been really interesting to see how God has woven this really this passion that I didn't even know existed. So, when I was in Ireland, I got connected, like I said, to Youth Unlimited. Got offered this job. I was pretty excited about it to run this drop in in some small town, but it wasn't built yet, so I had to come home. Then I realized a really sense that I wasn't supposed to go back to Europe and mm. I got connected to Youth for Christ Toronto and I would I volunteered because I had to raise money. Well, in the Dutch community, at least, right, you are begging for money. You work hard for what you earn. Right. So it was a huge culture shift too. But when I was volunteering, I worked with um, at-risk youth right between Scarborough and North York on the border there. So same thing. I loved, loved going to the drop-in and my job was my job. It was whatever. So there'd Mm. always be this training 
for my work, my actual like paying job, because I was working at the time. And mm. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't. And then I get this offer to go do stuff with youth ministry and I would just be like soaking it up. So it it just became really apparent that's what I needed to do. But it took a year before I agreed or chose to start working actually and raising money because I had to push past the idea that I was begging for money. Yes, the the Dutch Reformed would be one of the uh, more difficult cultures yeah, to uh is. yeah yeah but Very then sp- also extremely generous many right so anyway again god just had to do what he had to do and it happened at a church service i was sitting in a church and um again you know those moments where you're like okay apparently god's trying to say something mm-hmm. and I, I just really felt he said just trust me in this and i will provide and mm-hmm. he has literally not there's never been one paycheck that i haven't received fully so yeah it's pretty neat yeah just for any the the literal tens listening um when you work (laughs) for youth for christ you have to uh you have to fundraise your own salary so that's what she's talking about here yeah and so sometimes if you don't have enough in your account you uh you don't get fully paid or you go into arrears so it's refreshing to meet somebody and, and I've, I've met a lot, but it's, it's nice to hear people talk about how much they enjoy working with youth. Like I think sometimes you get the youth workers who either have been just doing it for so long and they're just kind of burnt out and jaded and they're just, you know, kind of hopeless or they're doing it because they feel like it's their responsibility or calling, but they actually don't genuinely enjoy youth, which is, I mean, that's kind of a recipe for disaster, but yeah, it sounds like, not the case with you just very much and it's kind of funny Matt like even over the years I was thinking about this the other day even in my role now I genuinely love talking to teenagers I just think they are in many ways just even the ones that are really I had a I'm I hope it's okay I'm jumping a little bit but I had a someone in my office recently and they were just not happy And I giggled at them, which isn't bad because I'm like, they were so angry. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, there's so much going on. And I just, I'm like, okay, so what's actually going on, right? I just really, really enjoy it. They have, and then to see what they end up doing. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Hmm. So what kinds of youth ministries then were you doing when you first joined uh, Youth for Christ, Youth Unlimited? Yep. I did uh, this uh, basketball um, program like it was a drop-in and then I was connected to the local high school. So literally across the road, um, it was Parkway Bible church and then mm. Victoria Park school. And I was there for two years in the high school, just as like a youth worker walking the halls, the schools were very open. Yeah, I was, was going to say back when that was a thing that you could yes, do. It was so fun. And I worked with the phys ed teacher. And so um, I met actually a couple of the staff we have now were my, in my like <laughs> group of ministry kids. So they were, wow. yeah. So I, I ran like a basketball, I'm sorry, I didn't run it. I volunteered at the basketball and a lot of those kids went to, or youth went to um, that high school. And so that was neat. Uh, and then we, my husband and I moved up to Stouffville and then I ended up being in a high school in Stouffville for 12 years. Uh, mm. Same thing I had. It was a crazy ministry because I had access to the whole school. Like I had an office. I would pull kids out of school. I helped with coaching. I kind of did whatever. But more than anything, I was just 
I think in some ways seen as a counselor, right? Um, which in hindsight, again, you realize probably wasn't great. And then in 2012, I got kicked out of there, out of that position because a new administrator came. But again, in hindsight, you can understand it now. Um, but yeah, that's what, what I started in doing. It was a lot of school stuff. So what, uh, yeah, what kind of prompted the transition into this, like going back to school and yeah, becoming yeah. like a registered psychotherapist? Yeah. So uh, I, I kind of had been toying with it because I would have students come into the office or I'd be chatting with them and they would say, um, I would say to them, you really need to talk to someone about what's happening, like what's going on. And they would be like, like, I'd say, you need a therapist. And they'd say, you're my therapist. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not your therapist. Let's not pretend. So um, I, I think I got to the point where I felt like I was getting frustrated because I could only go so far. And mm. they, they, I knew that I could gain the trust of them, but I couldn't help them past mm. a certain point. So you would still, they would still end up, you know, with this baggage or, well, really, I guess the stuff that they had to sort through. So I just decided to go back to school part-time in 2012. And like I said, I started in September and then in November, I got told I couldn't be in the school anymore in that position. So yeah, that was really hard, but. So then this new, new position or the, the new ministry that allowed you to do talk a bit about that. So what, what does it look like now for you? I ended up connecting to someone in a new market that was, uh, had an office space and I was working kind of in partnership with this program and it was good, but it was really new, this program. So I ended up getting office space in another office in Newmarket. And basically what I decided is that um, I would be a psychotherapist. If you saw me on like, I don't know if a church or, or like on psychology today or whatever, then I have an office in Newmarket and I provide services just like any other therapist would. Through Youth Unlimited, I can, um, I offer services or whatever to youth and programs of our staff. Um, because again, I just really sense that to leave and just become a therapist and I don't, it's amazing, but I just, uh, I didn't want to do that because we all know the mental health access is really hard. And so I just thought it was a tiny way of being able to provide something in the world of mental health that was affordable. Cause mm. a lot of our youth, right. As you would know, in our programs can't afford it. And so mm-hmm. then we just work through um, what that might look like if we have to go past 10 sessions or um, yeah, it's again, it's well worth it mm-hmm. to be able to provide that. So. Yeah. So, I mean, we've sent a few, a um, few of our youth to you which has always been super helpful, whether or not they are interested in following up on it, which is another story mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, but no, it's, it's true. The, the lack of access, um, to mental health supports is, yeah. I mean, pretty astonishing, really. I don't know if people are aware of it, if you're not in it or like living with somebody or living yourself with, um, a mental illness yeah. and need to access those things, but yeah, like wait lists are, Crazy. can be, months to years, you know, for, for like affordable things. If you are lucky enough that you can pay for it, then yeah, it's, it's not a factor, but those are not cheap either. So yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a mess. It is, it it is a mess. And I, 
And I'm actually starting to really feel for parents because, um, yeah, as parents, we're trying to navigate the system. That's really difficult. Yeah. And I, and I think there, so like, again, I, you know, work with homeless youth and there's like this phenomenon where there are certain programs where you, you have to be like a certain level of homeless to access it. You like, you gotta be living on the street. Right. And so there's people that are in this gray area where they absolutely need the services, but they're not quite homeless enough. And so really the, what you, you got to say to them is you kind of need to get more destitute (laughs) so that you can access these services. And I feel like the same happens with mental health. Like there's like a crisis point where the, like some things get activated and then it's like, okay, but the like lead up to that is just kind of a wasteland where, yeah, there's not a whole lot of supports. No, and it's really um, hard to navigate in the first place. Like even if you end up going like to the emergency for suicidal ideations or whatever, they're there. That's great. They'll keep the person safe for a couple of days, but unless there's a good diagnosis with medication, sorry, not a good diagnosis. I'm not suggesting they don't diagnose them well. If there's not a diagnosis that um, means medication, mm-hmm. then they basically are handed back to the families. Well, now you have a kid that's suicidal and you don't really have any idea of where to go. Um, you get a couple of numbers and you have to navigate the system. It's, it's wild actually, yeah. I think. And so um, anxiety producing, right? For families. So, and individuals mm-hmm. obviously like you're describing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking actually. Can you talk a bit about how you're, how do you understand therapy within a faith context? Because I've, I've come across people and I think I grew up with, yeah, with people in within a community where that's uh, a little bit suspect, let's say, you know, there, I mean, the, the most extreme example would be, well, Jesus is enough. So like, you know, you don't need to talk to a therapist, but then I think the more subtle is, you know, are you replacing like therapy's okay, but it can only you know, you can only trust it this far, or, um, you know, you got to make sure that you're not replacing Jesus with therapy. So coming from a faith background, but also as a therapist, how do you, yeah, how do you navigate that, that tension? Or how, how do you understand it in your own life and practice? Yeah, um, that's a good question. We live in a really broken world, 100%. And so um, our families are broken, our school systems broken, um, so it would make sense that we have a distorted view of, I think, what really the world is meant to be and what God intended our world to be. And so I think, you know, we could talk about loneliness. There's so many people that we shouldn't have a job. I shouldn't have a job. I understand that. And I am so excited when someone says, I don't actually need your services anymore. Cause I'm like, mm. that's amazing because then you're done. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no doubt in my mind that we need community. And for some people, community means being able to talk through things with a therapist. Mm. And because it really, we if you go back, we should have communities where we talk through this stuff in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, and then of course, so that's just talking through kind of your basic stuff, but then you get into like the thing, like the bigger or heavier things like schizophrenia or um, bipolar, et cetera. So then of course the medication to me is, it's it saves lives right Mm. and doctors are doing their best to figure out what that looks like so with regards to our faith in my mind absolutely god can 
cure, uh, heal. He's the great physician. I think that a hundred percent, but I also believe that the whole talking through and allowing the space to process and understand and, you know, gather information within the context of therapy is, is crucial in some cases is crucial. It's essential. Hmm. Um, I always speak through the lens of faith, not necessarily talking with a faith understanding, but um, because actually we're not allowed, mm-hmm. which some people might also push on and say, well, you should. But in my, I, in my um, view as well, if I just hit someone over the head with, well, you should trust more in Jesus, then the relationship's over. So um, everything I do is always thinking, okay, Lord, what do you want me to say? And I trust the prompting of the Holy Spirit, right? And all that, but it doesn't necessarily get translated into the sessions that I'm with. I don't, I think we do a really big disservice by saying, well, you need to pray harder. Cause I know families that have prayed, like not literally, but they have holes in their knees, forget about their genes from praying. Right. Mm. And it's so minimizing. And so, um, yeah, dismissive to say you need to pray harder when you have a kid or a family member that's going off the rails because of mental health and our faith isn't strong enough. Mm. Well, I really struggle with that, actually. I think we do a disservice when we start saying, well, your faith isn't strong enough or God must not be listening. You must be getting punished. That's That to me is like, what the, where did we get, how did we get there instead of saying, how can I support you? Like, what do you need to, you know, to get through today? Like that mm-hmm. sort of mentality to me makes way more sense than, oh, you're not, your faith is kind of crummy. Mm-hmm. That point, Matt, actually... I think what we do, particularly, I would say, in in most places, but in faith communities, is that we pull back, and we just become we make it about um, how do we get through today, in our very small, either in our family or with a couple people, so we don't have to feel shamed because somehow we made this happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I I don't understand. I it doesn't make sense to me that we we are very and even in our, we mean them as nice comments, but to say comments like, well, what did you do wrong? Or how, how did your kid end like this? And mm-hmm. right. And like, I don't know, we do our best, but our culture is really influential. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think there's a, you know, the grace of offering that to our, I don't know, fellow brothers and sisters and taking the judgment away. Mm-hmm. It's going to do more good than not. So in, in your experience, it, do you find that those types of comments of, of, yeah, like basically judgment and misunderstanding um, within the faith community, do you find that that's still quite prevalent with people who are living with mental illness or family members of, I know you work a lot with youth. So, you know, parents of, of youth living with mental illness. Um, I would say it's definitely better than it was like, I grew up in a home where we, one of my siblings struggled quite significantly with mental health. And, um, my parents were blamed by many people Mm. and they just pulled away as they would because they were doing their best. So, um, I think it is prevalent still. I find it interesting. And I just heard someone say this the other day that the let's talk, you know, the bell let's talk. Mm -hmm. I think it's great because, because we're talking about it more, but at the same time, I think it's, I think there's still a significant stigma attached to mental health. 
So it's kind of like a buzz of, we're going to talk about mental health, but if you are super struggling, then in some cases, yeah, there's still, well, why, why can't you go to work? Why do you have to stay in bed? Why are you so lazy? Why are you, why can't you go into the building? Why do you have to cry every time? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, I do think there's expectations that don't make sense. And I go back to that whole thing of if you had someone in the hospital because they had a disease of some sort, we'd be bringing potlucks, right? We'd Mm -hmm. be bringing meals. But if you have a child that can't get out of bed because they want to die, are we going to bring them meals? Some, yeah, some, and sometimes absolutely, but in some time, no, actually we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then you add culture to that. Culture plays a huge thing in that as well, right? The shame and the, so yeah, yeah, it's very still in many ways. What do you think is the root of that stigma? I mean, that's, that's such a great example of the difference of, yeah, if somebody is, you know, whatever cancer or whatever, you know, like they're, you you do bring them food or, or whatever, right. You gather around them, but for somebody who, yeah, like suicidal or whatever, and is really, really struggling. Yeah. Like you said, we don't, we don't respond to that. So what, why do you think, yeah, what's, what's the difference? I don't know, honestly, Matt, I don't know because, um, I think it com- maybe comes down to expectations of how we are supposed to do things or, yeah, I don't, I honestly don't know. I don't know where the root is because again, if I look at my own family, I don't, I don't know why. Obviously we do things poor, like wrong sometimes as parents or, um, and, and again, you look at something like schizophrenia, et cetera, then it is, there's chemical stuff happening for mm-hmm. sure. There, is. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know. I don't know why we do that to each other. Mm. I mean, <laughs> I think it's it's clear it makes it worse. I mean, that that seems to be, yeah, unambiguous. Well, and I wonder sometimes, and this is a funny thing, I just sometimes wonder if it's a relief because it's not us. I right. know that sounds funny, right? but well, at least I don't have to deal with that. Thank goodness mm-hmm. I don't. I had someone say that to me the other day. They said something and they're like, well, thank goodness I don't have that. And I was like, yeah, thank goodness. That's true. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But I know lots of people that do, and that's Mm -hmm. really hard. Mm -hmm. So I I think, I think that's right. Because I think even, even if you do look at like the, the physical health example, like I think the potlucks happen, they happen a lot at first, but when the illness continues and people kind of don't know what to do with that or nothing is yeah. changing or it's like really sad or whatever, I think that's when a lot of people kind of fall off and they're like, okay, like we've put in our time here. You, you're not better. <laughs> like we don't, you know, like we don't know how to handle this or like whatever. And so lots of people draw. And I, I, it's almost like mental illness is that just up front. Like people don't know what to do with it. It's scary. Well, yeah. It's really it- messy. So Yeah. And I, and I, as you were saying that, I, I was thinking like, I think sometimes we actually think it, they're choosing that Mm because when you hear people talk, right. And they're struggling in different areas of mental health and in your own head, you're going, I don't understand. Why don't you just do this? Why, why is it so hard? Even if someone says it like many times in my office, if I'm, if they say, well, I think, um, I'll use suicidal ideations because right now it's 
it's so significant like it's huge right among youth suicidal ideations is so uncommon is so common so then i'm going okay so what what's the purpose of it what why do you like what what value does it bring to the to when you think about it and they'll say i don't know it just gives me an out worst case scenario i know that there's an out Mm-hmm. And so I say, okay, so we talk through, we go lay out, is there value, et cetera. They go home and then they come back and they're like, yeah, I still think that. And so mm-hmm. I've gotten to the point to say, okay, so we have to keep talking about that. But it's very frustrating many times when you say something and you know, it's clear and the other person is kind of like, yeah, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so at some point to your point about kind of going, well, then we say, well, you're choosing this. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes wonder if that is also the case, right? You're choosing to not get out of bed. You're choosing not to go to school. You're choosing to, which isn't true. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's sometimes what people think. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you talk <laughs> about choice and, uh, and yeah, for mental illness and and people struggle with that because they think, you know, somebody is in bed because they're depressed. Well, they're, they're choosing to do that. So I guess in, in your experience in like professional training, where does choice begin and end for somebody that's living with a mental illness? I think of course there's choice. And I think they make choices every day when I think I'm thinking of one person in particular. So the choice, you know, to get out of bed or to, throw up or right all of that is is a choice in some ways but I think that those feelings sometimes are so strong like the feeling to stay in bed that it just kind of I guess the the best way that I would see it is that it like knocks the wind right out of them and there's and so it's almost like the choice in that moment is taken away because mm. it's so overwhelming. So the the choice to like stay in bed is way better option because mm. you just it's so exhausting to be pushing against this beast all the time. That's what mm-hmm. in my mind it would feel like, right? Mm. So I think again about this one person with an eating disorder, and I think, man, every day she's making choices. And when I talk to her, I think it is exhausting that every day it's I have to push against what my brain is telling me I should be doing, i.e. I should, I should throw that up or I shouldn't eat that or whatever it is. And so then it's like, no, I have to choose to do this because I know it's better for me. I know that it's going to make me feel better in the long run. So, so a hundred percent there's choices. I think there's a lot of choice and the pressure to make a choice that's healthier sometimes is harder to make than the one that is not as healthy. Right. Okay. Okay. That's how, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So, so yeah, like it's almost as though the, the, the choice, the choosing mechanism is compromised in some way where the, the illness is always going to be pushing them towards the more negative choice. And so they're not starting from like a place of neutrality, which I don't think anybody is, but like they're starting, they're very, um, they're very compromised in terms of of their ability to make a healthy choice or a choice that maybe other people would expect for them because they're not just starting with like, Oh yeah, I could do this or I could do this. Yeah. I I think I I do in some ways I that, um, that would be how I would explain it that I don't have to change. I don't have to deal with whether or not I'm going to throw my food up or 
I'm going to go and have a healthy breakfast and keep moving. Mm-hmm. To me, my brain doesn't work that way. I've, I've never had the, um, my brain tell me, make this choice because you actually want this. And um, I don't know if I'm making sense. You might no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that's it. Like, so suicidal ideation. Most people are not walking around. I, I, okay. A lot of people aren't walking around with a voice in their head constantly saying, you should die or you need to hurt yeah. yourself. So yeah. for them, it's, it's, I mean, it's a choice, but it's not a choice because it's the, the option never occurs to them or they don't have the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Or it does, right? Like, so, so can I use this example? So, um, you know, there's one modality in counseling where we talk about, um, have you ever been walking down the street? And I had this the other day, actually, it's really bad to admit you're walking down the street and there's someone walking towards you and they have coffee in their hand and in your head, it goes, <laughs> I want to knock the coffee out of their hands. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you don't grab, to, you don't knock it. That would be crazy. Cause we know that culturally that would be really mean and bad. So you don't do it, but it's still a thought in my head. Mm-hmm. So has there ever been a thought where you're driving down the highway and this fleeting thought comes in and says, I wonder what it would be like to drive off the road. Mm-hmm. You don't do it because you don't really want to hurt yourself, but it's a thought that comes in our head. Mm-hmm. And so And so I say this often with our youth, like when you talk about anxiety, this thought comes in and sometimes it's a fleeting thought. And sometimes we take a hold of that thought and all of a sudden it becomes truth. And so we hold on to that and we're like, I can't go into the school because people are going to laugh at me and they're going to ridicule me. And says who? Why is that a fact? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so in the same way, I think these suicidal ideations say what referring to what you said they can come in our minds and we, or I would be like, no, that's not even, yeah, it came. It doesn't mean anything, but mm-hmm. for some of them, we hold on to it. And then it just becomes, oh, it must be true. It must be true. And then you end up going down this path where that's the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm simplifying it for sure. But, you know, I, I, so again, choosing to acknowledge that and kind of roll it around in our mind and say, And then it just becomes kind of the norm, the normal pathway of what we think about. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to simplify it at all. I think it's super complicated, but um, Mm -hmm. it's a choice. Yeah, I think definitely there's choices, but it's just sometimes it's the harder one to make. Yeah. And I mean, using that example too, like if you are coming from a background where you've experienced a tremendous amount of trauma or something like that, right? Like you all of your experiences have taught you that that fleeting thought actually is true. Like that is, you know, like you've been treated so poorly. Like, so of course, like, of course this makes sense that I should die. Um, So yeah, again, it is a choice, but it's, I talk about a lot, a lot about this with like drug addiction. Right. And like a lot of the people that we work with, you know, have, have substance use uh, disorders and, yeah. Just talking about like where they've come from and like, yes, at, yeah. at some, yes, at some point it was a choice in the sense of, you know, nobody, well, for most of them, nobody stuck a needle in their arm or whatever. Yeah. Um, but where they were coming from, like that was, 
that is the choice that made the most sense or that was the choice that was the only choice that was going to give them the relief that really they probably like if they didn't have it they probably would have died yeah um so so yeah you know it's it is a choice but it's not it's i don't think it's a choice in the same way that people often use the word no i I agree so when you when you think even about suicidal ideations for some of our for some people it genuinely feels like the best choice right the best choice is not be here because then my family's not going to struggle i don't have to feel like this anymore like i had someone say to me the other day it's not that i want to die it's that i don't want to struggle anymore Mm -hmm. i was like i was like that's really well said that you, you know, you don't want to end your life. You want to not feel like garbage all the time and feel so this overwhelming sense of worthlessness and right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I said to you about the, like the nausea example, right. Where when you have the stomach flu, you don't, you don't really want to throw up. You just, you don't want to feel sick anymore. And so, you know, you make yourself throw up, not because that's like the awesome experience but because yeah maybe there will be some relief with it absolutely yeah yeah so coming then from like a faith background and this i've never figured out how to ask this question well but (laughs) (laughs) so the the christian conception of of sin is very much tied up in the idea of choice like we choose to sin we need to have you know, we need to repent, which means like we are basically acknowledging a wrong choice. And then we, we change course and we choose a different way of, of living. Right. And that's, you know, sanctification, whatever. Um, when you introduce mental illness, yeah, the equation, the it doesn't quite work out that way. So I guess the broad question is just like, how in your mind have you process or come to any sort of conclusion about how God sees the choices that are being made by somebody who is living with a mental illness? Are they like, in your understanding, does God see them as, as sins? Is there, is there some sort of gray area? Like, I I don't know. It's always been something that's been fascinating to me. I think the first thing that, as you said that, again, I go back to the idea of um, if I got cancer am i sinning right mm-hmm. and i think of, you know i think of some of the people that i know with bipolar or schizophrenia or high anxiety depression whatever it is so so then again they're saying that they are choosing to have this disease or have this illness and i don't think that's true so if we are going to say that someone's body in our fallen world, someone's body is, is ill or broken or whatever, not working. And they didn't choose, no one chooses to have, you know, again, I'll use cancer. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we could do a poll of a hundred people that struggle with mental illness. Again, I think of some of the people that I know a hundred percent, they would say no, or they would say it has allowed me to become closer to the Lord. Right. You hear about the tr- the trials of what people go through and they say, even though it was horrible, I wouldn't change it because it allowed me to draw closer to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So so I don't I don't think that the Lord goes, well, you chose not to get out of bed. So you you're sinning because mm-hmm. you're not living a 
free full life. I don't see, I don't think God is like that at all, because then that means he's punishing us for our brokenness and we should be punished because that's sin, right? Like that's how I would make sense of sin anyway. So yeah, I don't, um, I think God is a God that is so compassionate. And if anything, I think he weeps with the people that are like, again, I think of the people that I know, and I think he is weeping with the people that are every day struggling to make a, a choice that's going to be healthier. And so then the question is, well, why doesn't he take it away? Or why don't they just make those better choices so that they can, you know, not be struggling? Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand all that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I, if we're going to compare and, and actually say physically our bodies are ill, then our brains are also ill mm-hmm. and need healing. And sometimes people are freed from it and sometimes they aren't, or sometimes they're freed from it. And then for a season, and then it comes back for whatever reason, because it's the coping strategy that they've known, however that might look. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, I actually think that God, I think he actually is, is sad about it. Hmm. So I think this is kind of a, a follow-up question to this, but in all of your experiences with all the people you've worked with, the ones who are coming from a faith background or would say that they're, they're following Christ, how do they understand their faith and God? Like, what is it, what does it look like broad strokes? I mean, I know everybody's story is different, but in the sense of like, yeah, to be, to be a Christian and there's all these expectations of what that might look like, but they can't, they can't do it. Like that is just not their experience. Like they, for whatever reason and however you understand choice, but their life is just not going to look like what, you know, most people would say, Oh, like a Christian should look like this. So what, how do they understand their faith? I guess. I think sometimes it, um, they lean into it and they, um, becomes their lifeline, right? That is the hope of a better tomorrow. That sounds super cheesy, but that's right. A hope of something more, something different. And for some, I think, as is the case with, again, a physical illness, um, there's a frustration and an anger and a why, why am I not getting better? What am I doing wrong? How am I, how can, why am I being punished? Why? Like those questions. Mm -hmm. So I I guess it depends on the individual or even Mm -hmm. the season that the individual is in. And again, I I also think that like in the case of a, a physical illness, sometimes God just helps us in our faith and in the understanding of God that we can step out of that and live a freer life, right? Mm-hmm. And find freedom in the fact that, yes, I am Marianne and I struggle with anxiety, but I'm not mm-hmm. defined by that, mm-hmm. right? So every day is like, okay, Lord, teach me to walk in your way. And the anxiety kind of hovers there. I'm just using that as example. I don't necessarily struggle with anxiety, but right. You, you're not defined by that. And so therefore, as you move forward in your day, some days are harder than other days. So I, I, again, I don't think there's like you said in the beginning, there's not one answer for every person for sure. So what, well, I guess what ways have you seen um, faith communities be helpful for people living with a mental illness? And what are some things you've seen where, yeah, that, that did not help that made things worse. And like, what does it look like for, for 
really anybody, but I, I guess particularly like communities of faith to be, yeah, like supportive people. I think the supportive one would be the check-ins and the, quite frankly, it's not a label, right? So, so someone struggles with this. Okay. So what do you need today? What, how can we walk with you in this and the support and creating a safe space for that person to have a good day, but also to have a bad day that that's okay. Right. Um, the encouragement to push and make choices that might be healthier, or as opposed to why are you not doing that? The questioning, mm-hmm. condemning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is what we all want, right? We all want a place to land where we don't feel like our burdens are too heavy or that people are going to take what we say and run with it and go, oh, did you know this? And oh, mm-hmm. they must be doing something wrong or uh, it, it doesn't serve any purpose. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, there's no purpose in kind of casting this. Well, it's your fault. On the other side, it's interesting as I was, as you were t- talking earlier, I was thinking um, what I have noticed, because I worked within a faith community as well um, in a school setting in, in another school. And what I noticed is that our youth are struggling with the same mental health things, but then often there's a layer of faith, the faith um, component, which is different in the non-faith community, obviously but it's like this shame slash guilt that you're struggling to your point. Right. And we're not praying hard enough or we're not doing like, you shouldn't have that. You shouldn't Mm -hmm. be dealing with that. So when you have a youth that's genuinely struggling with anxiety or depression, keeping in mind that we are in this culture, which is blowing up our, you know, every sense of the words, social media, et cetera, Mm -hmm. They are still dealing with the same things. And then there's this expectation that their faith is going to pull them through and that they shouldn't be dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And so you're dealing with two layers of things, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's not helpful. In in the, you were talking about like the things that are helpful. And so you talked about encouraging healthy choices versus judgment. And I mean, this may be a, a simple question, but I'm, like, how would you define the difference? What does it look like to encourage somebody who's living with a mental illness? Well, I, I keep going back to this one individual who's, it's more of an eating disorder. But so, for example, when um, they decide not to um, get rid of their food, when they decide not to throw up, that's a big deal, right? When they decide to um, eat well for a day, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a Right. When, when someone comes into my office and they um, have been able to like stand up for kind of what they think or how they feel in a setting where they haven't before, to me, those are all big deals. And so celebrating that with a person, because it's a big deal Hmm. and they're small to us that might feel very small and we're like, well, it should be happening anyways. When Hmm. someone shows up at my office because they haven't, um, been able to get out of bed and they're like, you know, um, I'm here. How about we celebrate that? It sounds Mm -hmm. crazy. Another one often with self-harm, you're kind of monitoring what's happening, what's triggering it, et cetera. Someone will show up and say, I haven't self-harmed in two months. That's like huge. Mm -hmm. Right. So those decisions. But it's, yeah, it's funny. I think it's like you said, people's, the expectation is though that that's just normal like well you know why should we be celebrating something that is just 
well, okay, like, yes, great. <laughs> you got out of bed. Everybody gets out of bed. Good for you. Um, yeah. But I think as we talked about, like, it's not, it's different. Like it isn't, they're not starting from that point where that is just normal for them. Yeah. No, but the, sorry, go ahead. No, just that it, like, it takes, it takes a level of effort just using the get out of bed example for somebody living with mental illness, like that is struggling with that, um, like depression. Uh, yeah, it takes a, a level of effort to do that. That is just like, it's a non-factor for other people. Like it, it yeah, it's not, wouldn't even consider that. So yeah. 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 And those little things are, but then, but then adding on to that, just the potential of what so many individuals have, right? You can see the potential in people and kind of point that out. And not as a, oh, that's what you should be doing, but you are capable of so much more. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to, you add the faith part, we're capable of so much more because you're an image of God, right? You're created in the image of God. And out of that, we are able to do so much more. So it's, it's, I just think it's really kind of a privilege to walk with people that are struggling actually. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that's what makes you very good at what you do, but that would be a privilege. Some days. <laughs> okay. I got that part. Um, I guess, yeah, I think my last couple of questions will be just around your own kind of experience of what has working this closely with people and mostly youth who are, who are living with different mental illnesses and some more severe than others in terms of their impact and stuff. But like, what, what has that taught you about faith and, and God's character? If I'm really honest, Matt, I think that in spite of growing up in a home where mental illness uh, was present I have learned to stop or I'm learning to stop. Um, I don't get to decide what's going on for other people. And I, I think it comes down to really the graciousness of God, right? Like, man, he's gracious and so, so faithful. So, and for me, again, um, more than anything is this, fact that I can literally do nothing without Christ. I actually believe that. I genuinely think that we can make our best plans. We can do our best plans as a parent. And we all know there's so many parenting blogs that tell you how to be the perfect parent. It kind of, I was looking for it the other day, that verse that talks about, you know, in our humanness, we create plans, but God actually, his plan is different. Mm -hmm. So even though it would be, some might argue, well, so you're suggesting that mental illness can be part of God's plan. Not necessarily. He's perfect. However, he can use that stuff, those hard things to allow us to draw closer to him or to understand him more. Um, and so I think I'm learning that probably the most. Mm. And this idea that everybody's carrying stuff. And so who am I to decide how that's going to to look for them mm -hmm. other than to say how can i support this what can i do it's funny you say that i think like in my own work with with homeless youth i when i started i think i had some pretty clear ideas of like what their life should look like like this is what this is what progress looks like this is what you know we're yeah. trying to like help them become um and then that just yeah that just got completely destroyed um, yeah 
and yeah. yeah, like you said, we don't, we don't, we don't have the power and I don't think we have the right to dictate what somebody's life should look like. I think, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the helping them get to a position where they can have hope for something more than what they're experiencing right now mm-hmm. without dictating yeah. what that even necessarily looks like. Mm-hmm. Cause uh, yeah, I yeah. have hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and genuinely not not um like believing that I don't care where you come from or what your life looks like that there's hope because otherwise what's the point like honestly mm-hmm. I can appreciate that when people say well what's the point but if mm-hmm. we don't have hope you know right so you said about you know that that mental illness not being a part of God's plan but you know can be used by Him and I think I've like I've seen that in my own life too but I am always very careful to make the distinction between this is something God caused versus something. This is something that just is present in our broken world. And so God uses that. But what do you do when, yeah, when the illness is just so destructive, like when there is no, there's no silver linings or there's no evidence of God at work or using this and like nothing good is coming out of this. Maybe this is naive to say, but I, I, I still genuinely believe that there has to be hope, a hope for something even if it's a small thing, like I'm not talking, you talk about a homeless youth that's dealt with tremendous trauma and abuse, and all of a sudden they're going to be in a house, Mm -hmm. but that there's still a hope for change. And, um, and again, I, I don't, I guess the whole bottom line to me is that God doesn't see me any different than he does that homeless youth or the people that I work with. And so, in his eyes, the situation is horrible and so messed up in so many ways. Um, but I still, I don't know. I think it's a naive, (laughs) (laughs) this idea of, of the hope for something different. And we may never see it on earth. I understand that, Mm. but I, I, I cling to the fact that God doesn't want this either. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean for the youth that we work with? Now, a person in that situation, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, well, you should have some hope about tomorrow because it'll be better. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I actually wonder if that's on us then to say, I'm just going to, I'm going to offer hope or I'm going to offer something that's going to, um, you know, allow you to see things even slightly different because they can't. Mm -hmm. Kind of like when you're standing beside a parent whose child is dying of cancer or whatever, mm-hmm. what do you say to that? Mm-hmm. Well, you can be present with them, but we, we don't have any, I can't say, well, your child's going to be healed. That's not true. Who might mm-hmm. say that? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not, it's the same with our youth or some of the people that we work with. We can't tell them it's going to be better tomorrow or their decisions are going to be easier. That's not true. That's minimizing mm-hmm. what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So I think joining in that and just saying, I'm going to, I'm going to be here for you because you're worth it because Mm. God thinks you're worth it. Mm. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You say that I I had a discussion with uh, somebody the other day and, and he's in a, he's in a ministry position and just like wanted to talk a little bit about, yeah, like how, how to understand mental illness. And I think that was the hard thing for him that he, he struggled to understand, like, if he can't promise that things will get better or like, I don't even think he necessarily thought like a full healing or something like that, but like, where, where is the hope though? Then like, if we can't promise that, and I think you're right. Like, I don't know. I have no idea. 
I don't, it's beyond my ability to mm-hmm. certainly to cause it. So, so yeah, like w- what is the hope then? Yeah. And, and, the, and this is, I think where my faith is probably stronger because it is a hundred percent. My hope is in Christ. And again, I, I, I genuinely do not believe that just because I'm educated, just because, um, you know, I don't struggle with mental illness. That doesn't mean that my life is worth more than who's someone who struggles in that regard. But to your point about this guy, this person you're talking about, I think it's taking the pressure off of ourselves as well to say, we're not the saviors. We're not meant to be the ones that are fixing people. Because again, it dismisses what that person's going through. So I can't take someone's anxiety away. It's really interesting, Matt. What I'm learning is that even with parents, so when our kids are really struggling or they are um, in the midst of really like chaos, we want to make it better for them because then we can also feel better. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. So sometimes they have to go through that stuff in order to get bumped around so that they can come out the other side and have a story like, and I never mean it's for the story, but for them to be able to process and understand who they are more. Mm -hmm. So we have to allow that process, but what does that mean? And who are we depending on for them to go through that? Mm. That's very different than what we were talking about. I know the trauma and the mental health, mental illness that's happening on the street say, but Mm. we still can't fix that. We don't, we're not, we're not God. We're not great physicians. So Mm to sit with someone and offer a cup of coffee or you know an encouraging word maybe that's what it is for that day mm-hmm. but i it's that it, it you're right it's a really hard thing we don't have answers that we want because it makes us feel like well what's the point mm-hmm. yeah yeah what is the point i think uh yeah I, I think there is that that uh conception that this is this is what we have to offer. And so if that, if that isn't true, then what is that? I mean, like as a faith community, like, yeah, we, it's this hope of like healing or whatever. And like, yeah, God does, he does heal, but he doesn't heal everybody. So I don't know. I, I can't say for sure that you'll be one of them. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, no. You did talk a, a lot about hope for you. And it sounds correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your understanding of hope extends beyond this present life, like that, this, the things that you hope for might not actually even happen here on earth. Would that be right? Yeah, totally. Where, where I don't think I, I really do believe our world is a hot mess. <laughs> so, you know, we can do what we can do. And I, maybe again, maybe it's the way that I cope with it, but to think that this is just such a temporary thing. So we can offer what we can offer the rest we can leave to the Lord. And trust me, that is very easy said and not easy to do, particularly when our family members are struggling, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's how I make sense of it all because Mm -hmm. there aren't answers to a lot of things. So we are in, I'm in this place for this season of my life. I don't know why, but this is where God has me. And so I truly am trying to do what God's will is for my life. Okay, Lord, what's today? Who am I going to have, you know, influence on or impact or make angry? I don't know, but right. right? Yeah. And out of that, let me, let me do what you want me to do. And then I'm going to trust that you're doing whatever you're doing. 
Otherwise it's exhausting to think that I have to fix all these different things. Yes, it is. It is exhausting. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I think we'll end there. I, I want, I'm going to say that was a positive end. <laughs> we ended on a high note with hope, <laughs> but the recognition that things don't always yeah, go as we hope. So, yeah. well, thank you very much for your time and sharing your experiences. Uh, very much appreciate it. No problem. It was nice to chat with you. That's our show for today. Special thanks to Mark Calvitis for the podcast cover art. This podcast deals with some pretty serious topics. If you are struggling with your mental health or are thinking about suicide, please reach out to a trusted friend or some other person you know loves and cares for you. There are also professional supports available. Please go online and visit Crisis Services Canada to find the distress centres and crisis organizations nearest you or call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566. They are available to talk 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. If you are under 29, the Kids Help Phone has professional counsellors available to provide confidential and anonymous care. Call them toll-free at 1-800-668-6868 or text the word CONNECT to 686868. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions about today's or any other episode, please email podcastdarkly21 at gmail.com. If you appreciate and enjoy this podcast, please subscribe or give it a rating on whichever podcast app you use, since apparently that makes it more likely other people will find it. Finally, because it's always good to end with a blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. As always, thanks for listening.